Hello, friends, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Blair, and thanks for listening today. Today's episode features Patrick Sagisi, venture capital investor with DBL Partners, a San Francisco-based venture firm focused on delivering double bottom line returns, both in terms of financial and societal benefits. His firm has backed incredible companies such as Tesla, SolarCity, SpaceX, Farmers Business Network, Pandora, among others. In this episode, Patrick tells us about growing up on the far-off island of Guam, competing as a swimmer in three consecutive Olympics, attending both Berkeley and Stanford, earning degrees in both engineering and business, navigating his career as an operator in the world of tech, and eventually becoming a prominent Bay Area venture capitalist. Anyone who meets Patrick instantly knows he's a great guy. But as a result of this conversation, I gained a new respect for Patrick's mindset, particularly around his sense of discipline. Competing in athletics at the elite level helped him gain an incredible self-discipline at an early age, which has served him throughout his career and his personal life. So without further delay, please give it up for an epic human, Patrick Sagisi. And we are live with Patrick Sagisi uh, here at DBL Partners. Um, welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Hey, Joe. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Happy to have you and, uh, and, and thanks for hosting me at your office. Uh, so Patrick is a venture capital investor with DBL Partners. That stands for Double Bottom Line. Uh, and we're going to talk all about it uh, and, and, and what that means. Uh, but first, we're going to start uh, just the way we start most podcasts, which is uh, the origin story of the guest. And so I would love for you to tell me about your, your background, where you were born, where you grew up, um, and what you were like as a kid. So I was born in New York, and in high school I got bitten by a radioactive spider. Oh, <laughs> nope, sorry, wrong one. No. Uh, but actually, it's funny you ask that, Joe, because it's one of the questions I love to ask the entrepreneurs that we meet with mm. the superhero origin story and figure nice. out uh, how and why they got where they are, because uh, everyone's path into venture capital is different, uh, but it's always interesting to see. So I'm originally from the island of Guam. Uh, most people... Actually, more people know about it today because it's a it's a big U.S. military base out in the Western Pacific. I was born there, uh, spent most of my early childhood there, uh, pretty idyllic setting. It's kind of like growing up in Hawaii, mm. um, which is great. The downside is it's kind of like growing up in any tropical paradise. You could either, when you grow up, you can work for the government, you can work for the military, you can work for the tourism industry. Um, and none of those was particularly appealing to me. Uh, but I did spend a lot of time in the water. Uh, I got to be a pretty decent swimmer, uh, competed in the Pan Pacific Swimming Championships, South Pacific Games, and, and World Champs and other events. And that led me to end going to school for high school in Jacksonville, Florida, hmm. uh, on the east coast of the U.S. Um, and uh, I'd always had my whole life this sort of dual uh, focus, so sports and school. Um, ended up getting into UC Berkeley, um, where I studied engineering. So I did a double major, and it sounds like a triple, but it's just a double: electrical engineering, computer science, and material science engineering. And I was also a member of the Calman swim team. Go Bears! <laughs> um, so uh, during that time, you know, it took a, it was a lot. It was about forty hours of something a week training, but I, I managed to compete at a national level. I, uh, I also got to go um, to the Olympics three times. Guam, uh, Seoul 88 games, Barcelona 1992 games, and after college, Atlanta into the 1996 Summer Olympics, where I was also the flag bearer for Guam in the opening ceremonies. 
Wow. Hold, um, hold on one sec. So, so you. In fact, yeah. So, so you were in college. Yeah. And uh, at Berkeley. Yeah. And then, how does how does the timing of you in college <laughs> line up with your first? Let's say your first Olympics. Uh, I went to my first Olympics as a senior in high school. Oh, okay. So this um, is when you were living in Florida. Yeah. Yeah, when I was okay. living in Florida, yeah. uh, ninety-two in Barcelona was um, my third or fourth year at Cal, mm-hmm. um, and then I continued training after uh, for another year or two after after I graduated because I wanted to make another run for it, and uh, I had the fortunate opportunity to to be able to do that, uh, you know, be both an elite athlete and a student, and I think, you know, it takes a lot of work. Uh, you're definitely putting in what the the, uh, the ten thousand hours <laughs> mm. to get good at something, and um, but it also taught me a lot of discipline and just being able to get stuff done without a lot of time available. Yeah. And uh, are there particular events you specialize in? Oh yeah, so yeah, I was a sprinter. I swam in the fifty freestyle, the hundred freestyle, and the hundred meter butterfly. Awesome. Um, so short and, events. And does uh, educate me here? Does does Guam have its own team or is it a it's part it, of the U.S. team? It does, it does. Um, so the International Olympic Committee recognizes Olympic countries. Um, Guam and all the U.S. territories are separate members, as is something like Hong Kong, which is now part of China but competes under its own flag. Mm. Um, tai- Taiwan competes under the city of Chinese Taipei. and Like the Bahamas? Right? Uh, they're a separate country as well. Yeah. But, but basically, um, yeah, so... Uh, I have one citizenship. I'm a U.S. citizen. Guam's part of the USA, but they have their own separate Olympic team. And growing up, I had competed for them a lot in the Pacific, uh, different regional competitions in Japan and the Pacific. And um, frankly, you know, I, I made the cuts for U.S. Olympic trials, but in 96, I would have been like in the second final or later. So I wouldn't have made the team. But I still, um, in addition to that, there's also minimum qualifying standards that FINA, the International Swimming Federation, puts, um, which is basically like top 50 in the world, mm. to qualify to go. Wow. So um, our, our, our island has a very strict no-tourist policy, unlike some other places. So if, you're, if they're going to send you, you're going to have to be able to compete. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. But and, uh, and, and just, I mean, for the average person, <clears> like, they have no idea what... It, competing in the Olympics would have been like mm-hmm. um, we see it on TV but mm-hmm. like is there any way you can encapsulate like what it felt like to be there um, yeah I'll give you two two things so one is um, opening ceremonies right everybody sees this giant spectacle on screen on the TV and it's hours long and um, you know they put you in a little holding facility which is usually a stadium next to the stadium for about three and a half hours while they go through all the big shows and stuff before the parade of athletes mm. in. and it's boring I mean it's nice you can meet with a lot of your friends but there's there's sort of a lot of electricity in the air sure. um, but it really becomes real once you start walking through this long dark tunnel into the main stadium and you it's it's always a long dark tunnel for some reason <laughs> <laughs> and you're walking through and um, I'm feeling this right now, like the nerve endings on all of your skin just start building up and getting electrified and on fire and on fire and on fire and also you burst out into the light and there's a hundred something thousand people there, they're screaming, it's the Olympics Whoa. and you, every nerve ending in your body is on fire um, for the next 24 hours and it's the hard part is not being up and um, energized, it's actually calming down and finding your center so that you can actually focus on doing your race. Mm. And then when it does come time to get on the blocks and on the race, it's, you know, it's the Olympics, but it's also still a swim meet. 
the pool is 50 meters long. Your lane is nine feet wide. Right. You have, you know, your event. I know how many strokes it takes me and Butterfly to get down and back for each length of the pool. I know what I'm trying to do. Um, and you just have to find a center and focus amid the chaos and, and, and give it your best go. And, you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Um, one of the great things sports teaches you is that you're, you're going to get knocked down a lot. You're going to lose a lot more races than you win. Mm. You just try to make the ones that you win count for a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a lot like what we do as investors, too, because if you look at the way our venture portfolios are done, we'll invest in 23 to 25 companies in a fund. Half of those are probably going to fail or, or return very little capital. There's a few that will be profitable or do okay. But those one or two home runs, like the Tesla for DBL, Tesla, Solar City, Pandora Media, mm. we have some other companies coming up soon, um, like the Real Real Farmers Business Network, SpaceX, Planet Labs, Mapbox. Um, if you can find a few huge wins, they can really make a difference. Um, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And just just one <coughs> last question on the on the Olympics mm -hmm. is uh, th those nerves and 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 the way you perform and the way you prepare and the way you execute, did that change for you personally throughout the three? Like, did you notice differences between the three um, for, for you personally? I think, you know, my first time there at the games, I was 17. Yeah. Um, I had my 21st birthday at my second one and my 25th birthday at my th the third one. Um, there is this sense of becoming like a veteran and knowing how things are going to go. Uh, at the same time, every city and every games has its own unique, different character. Um, a lot of it's shaped by the country you're in. A lot of it's shaped by where you are in your career. I, I started out as a backstroker, but I had to morph and evolve through college to a butterflyer and a freestyler. And um, my body, you know, with all that training, was getting better all the time, too. I, I had the good fortune before the Atlanta Games to get a training scholarship to Australia's National Olympic Training Center, the Australian Institute of Sport, and just live there for a year. So it wasn't like going to school and training 45 hours a week. Um, actually, the NCAA says you can only do 20, so officially 20 <laughs> hours a week. And the rest was, gym and stuff was, quote, optional. Yeah, um, for fun. <laughs> to improve, that <laughs> right. you did on your own. Right. They couldn't mandate it, but you know, if you wanted to do well, you had to put in the time. Got it. And then after college, for a year and a half, like being a working step, working you know, 40, 50 hours a week and training another 40 hours a week, um, time management skills come into play really well here. So I had a year where I was just an athlete. I got you know a great offer and got, went to train at the with the Australian Institute of Sport. Their national a lot of members of the Australian national team and basically like being at the US Olympic Training Center for a year and just having the the luxury of being able to focus everything on the goal of getting ready for Atlanta was was really it's a, a lucky time for me and, yeah. and I got to the next level really. And and were there any uh, just because I'm I'm interested in uh, mm -hmm. exercise and and like health and whatnot were there was there any um, were there any tricks or tips that that you picked up whether from a diet perspective or kind of a perspective of not getting injured were there any tricks um, you used warm ups and stretching and, and it was funny because in high school I had a coach who was all about cranking out the mileage mm -hmm. as a, a sprinter you're doing 50 60 70 thousand yards a week distance mm -hmm. um, people do like 80 to 100 and it goes comes in cycles in college it was a lot more about technique in Australia it was really about technique it was funny I did less yardage but tougher work hmm. we did a lot of I had a Russian coach who had been the former coach of the, the Russian national team 
So we did a lot of, um, the, the takeaway here is you don't need all the fancy training gear and machines to, to get well and do, I mean, if you remember, is it Rocky IV where he goes to Siberia and he's just working out with like stuff or all the Rocky movies, Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> you don't need all the fancy gym gear. It helps to have that, but we did all kinds of crazy gymnastics and stretch and core um, did you go exercises, any? running on the beach, we were doing yeah. rope climbs, we were doing playing basketball, doing all kinds of cross training and fitness training. Hmm. But um, so that all around fitness combined with really working on specific techniques for your sport, the right pitch angle for your arms, the right timing for breathing and, and doing things, and especially in butterfly, um, helps a lot. But in, in terms of like general fitness, running is the fastest way to burn off weight. Hmm. <clears throat> Unfortunately, um, it's, you just got to put in the miles there. And then I would say that um, really focusing on your technique will keep you from getting injured in whatever you're doing. Gotcha. Um, when you're training that much, I mean, if you're swimming 10, 12, 15,000 meters a day, um, you can pretty much eat whenever you want. You don't have to worry about it. Your, your caloric <laughs> burn, burn it is high. And, uh, uh, do, you, and do you still swim? or? Uh, I do. Or what do you do for exercise generally? I chase today? my six-year-old around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, we, we're fortunate. We live up in the East Bay Hills. We're next to uh, Redwood Regional Park, and so we, we go for a lot of hikes and all. If I'm lucky, I can sneak into the pool a couple times a week. I still like to touch the water. It, it's as natural to me as walking. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, all right, well, so let's take it back yeah. to uh, you graduated college. You're, you're working. You, you, you do Well, I guess let, let's get, let's get yeah. to when you graduated college, like work-wise. What did work you Work-wise, I went to, to work for a company called Dallas Semiconductor. They've been bought up by Maxim now, but basically I was a, an engineer uh, in, a, in a wafer fab uh, developing new chips, and that was my first taste of... Um, I was lucky. So very often when you join a big corporation, you'll get stuck on, um, let's crank out the next iteration of something that's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been fortunate throughout my career to have been in groups and big companies that are like, let's create the version 1.0 of something that we've not done before. Mm. And bringing a new technology-enabled product or service to market um, in semiconductors and consumer. Later on at places like Adobe Systems or helping spin out a company from Xerox Park consumer and enterprise software, hardware, um, <clears throat> and then moving on, even medical devices. Um, I spent some time at a company called Ventana Medical Systems before they got bought by Roche, and even um, with Samsung. And I think the, the path for me was always about learning to do the algorithm, algorithm really well of like, we have an amazing idea, we have an interesting technology, let's find a, a really good market need and create a product or service around that lead that team through the design and development cycle, get it to market, ship it, launch it, and grow early revenues. And, um, you know, I, I worked with some really amazing people throughout the years who taught me how to do that. And for me, that's been a sort of invaluable tool as on the other side of the table as an investor because as a former product manager working in manufacturing ops and sales and marketing, I did my own sort of rotational leadership development program. Mm. But it's, it's easier to go from, in sports terms, I've gone from being the athlete to, to being sort of like a coach <laughs> in some ways and trying to help the entrepreneurs that we work with through the difficulties that they come across and the road bumps 
and the speed bumps that they hit as they're trying to build their own companies and bring products to market and launch them out into the field and, and get them growing and get traction. So yeah, it's been invaluable. Oh, I can. There I are can many ways it. into VC, but like I come from the whether I would say is like the operations branch. So so I guess how did you how did you make that transition and how did you like what was your first exposure to uh, venture capital? Um, I came back and so uh, for for graduate school after after the 96 games I was like okay I'm done I'm not going to try to go to Sydney although in retrospect it would have been fun to try to make a fourth one <laughs> but, you know you sort of have to move on in life and do different things and uh, I, uh, I applied to grad school so I went to grad school after the Olympics and that actually helped get me in because it's hyper competitive but I, I committed what many of my Cal buddies would call the cardinal sin I went to Stanford <laughs> for an MBA and a master's in engineering as well. Okay. So I did a double-double again. Um, and it, um, yeah, so grad school, and that taught me a lot. It helped build out the toolkit of understanding and thinking about businesses, but also being at Stanford in the late 90s during the dot-com boom, you couldn't escape from it. You couldn't escape from startup formation. You couldn't escape from venture capitalists being used. And it's funny looking back now and thinking like, gosh, the total worldwide population of the internet was hundred million people or less versus the four or five billion people that are online now but think about wow, what happened through that yeah, yeah. Um, um, I saw very rapid rises and falls of companies and but did get exposed to this whole idea of like um, I'd always been interested in entrepreneurship and, and bringing new things to market but got exposed to the idea of like wow there are these people here that help coach seed and grow companies and then you see things going public um, you know, admittedly, the 90s was a time for a lot of fluffy things going public and then crashing when the mm -hmm. bust came. But mm -hmm. being in that gold rush cycle that seems to occur every now and again here, in the, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, was, was really my first um, real experience with it all. So you, so you got the bug. <laughs> I got the bug, but, you know, I did something interesting. So I came out of business school and it's like, gosh, should I go join this Bookselling startup in Seattle, that Amazon thing, or these search guys at Google, or I went to a company called I went to Adobe Systems. Uh, I went to like the big, the tried, and the true. And looking back, gosh, my life would have been very different if I'd been a pre-IPO employee at one of the those high flyers. But I think I made the right choice in that. Um, athletics taught me that you have to do the work. You have to put in. You have to do your base training. You have to put in the work. You have to learn the technique. You have to earn your stripes if you want to compete at that super high level. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a process that takes time. It's a process that requires um, a lot of effort and dedication. And so for me coming out of business school, I you know, getting into product management at Adobe, getting to launch new products for them was a good way to sort of learn from people who'd been there before, done that and knew the right way to do things. That's not the right path for everyone. And again, you know, it's like gosh, what have, what would it have been like to have been like <laughs> first 50 employees at Amazon or Google I'd probably be done by now but, but it would have been a very different path right and right. I, I learned I think I learned a lot more by doing it the harder way sure sure and then from Adobe uh, um, Adobe um, so interesting so the dot-com bust came and uh, Adobe did something it had never done in like the tens of years that you know more than 10 plus years had been around and things were tight and so um, I got to take a sabbatical <laughs> along with 10% of the other people <laughs> oh. in the company. Uh, but what I did with that, I, I uh, my then girlfriend and now wife for several years and I basically cashed in all our frequent flyer miles and 
got two round trip tickets around the world and went traveling for nine months during like the 2000 really? time. Wow. On 2002. And it, it was a good thing. It was our, our choice was like, we could do this when they're 65 plus and retired, or we can do this now or we can still enjoy it and we can go see the world. And um, that I had always grown up internationally. Um, I grew up in Guam. I got to travel a lot around the Far East and Pacific for competitions and things and see a lot of different cultures. And so, you know, having that break to go and recharge and see different parts of the world and rediscover a lot of things was, was a really good thing for me. Eventually ended up um, moving back to the Bay Area. Nothing was happening here. It was, you know, nuclear where, winter. Where did you travel, by the way? We got, so this is great. The Star Alliance has these round the world tickets where you can pay, I, I think at the time, a business class round the world, 28 to, I think it was 30,000 miles, 15 cities was like 6,500 US dollars. Whoa. One way. Wow. Round, so you can keep going one direction going. and just travel on the Star Alliance network in business class. Wow. And then rail passes and all that. And so it was a really, I think they still have these deals. I'm not sure if it's still that inexpensive, but yeah. if you have the time and from school and from other things and work, I had friends sprinkled in competition. I had friends sprinkled all around the, the globe. So I had, Airbnb didn't exist, but I had plenty of couches <laughs> to crash on. But no, um, we spent a lot of time in Europe, uh, Morocco, North Africa, um, Spent a bunch of time in Southeast Asia, um, all around, and Australia and New Zealand and work, Fiji, working our way back to the U.S. It was a good trip. It was a formative trip. And um, I think an interesting way to start seeing what was happening with the rest of the world in terms mm -hmm. of, like, technology and all. And Did you get yeah. anything out of it? I mean, travel's always kind of... <laughs> interesting and fun but did you gain any kind of new insights through that um, and maybe you could expand on the seeing technology and um, how it's affecting so the world. part of it was also doing interviews like in London in Paris in New York in Hong Kong in Japan in Australia in places where I'd worked before and um, the dot-com crash really affected a lot of places that were in sort of core tech and and other places were still coming up the learning curve and hadn't really been built out yet um, if you think back to when around 2002, that was like 16 years ago, um, Shanghai was not what it was. Guangzhou was not what it was. Um, I would also say it's also, on a personal note, it's kind of liberating to know that you don't need a lot of stuff, mm. right? You have what you can carry with you in one or two bags, and that's okay. And, you know, again, this is back in 2002. Right now, you know, one bag travel is a huge thing right now. For a number of reasons and it has been for like seven or ten years but um, wasn't as much before and I think to um, one of the things so we're a generalist firm and one of the th we see a lot of different things across clean tech clean energy information technologies hardware and software sustainable products and services ag tech space financial inclusion and literacy healthcare and so uh, being able to understand quickly and move through different cultures and spaces is a bonus when you're working in the world that we work in. Sure, sure. Yeah, it, it helps to understand the context of different uh, cultures, like, like you said. And customers, and also yeah. just, you know, healthcare companies, early stage technology companies, big corporations and others, they all, I mean, I spent, after, after we got back and I, I spent some time working for a medical device company called Ventana Medical Systems in Tucson, um, and then went from there three years at Samsung. I'm getting to the DBL job, but okay, getting yeah. to spent three years in Seoul at Samsung headquarters. Okay. Um, 
but the ability to sort of jump in and out of cultures and and be sort of uh, is something that all workers will need today in our global economy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds incredibly valuable. Uh, so, so you were at Samsung for three years, mm-hmm. and and at what time did you, uh, th- through those experiences, did you uh, start the Kaufman uh, Fellowship? So I I didn't. So I'd applied actually once we got back from our trip, so yeah. early, mid two thousand two two thousand three. I applied. There, so I let me just back up. I yeah, got sure. into venture capital through. Um, being a Kauffman Fellow. Okay. And for people that don't know what that is, the Kauffman Fellows Program has been around since 1995. It was originally started at the Ewing Marion Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City. Uh, mm-hmm. He owns Kansas, Mary, Ewing Marion Kauffman, started Marion Labs, uh, invented like Alka-Seltzer, um, sold the company for multiple billions of dollars, bought the Kansas City Royals, was a big philanthropist. But one of his things that he wanted to do was to help promote entrepreneurship in the United States, both by supporting entrepreneurs and early stage companies through different programs of education and making things available to them. But also, he looked at the entire system and one of the areas that was um, needed some improvement was the capital formation side. How do you find and fund high growth companies which can then create economic opportunity for a lot of people? So he started the Coffin, the Coffin Foundation, started the Coffin Fellows Program, which was designed to like bring new people into the into the industry. Can, you can think of it sort of like a um, two-year or so program that's an accelerated executive MBA to help get people up to speed on what it is to be a good venture capitalist, both from the practice of the craft, but also in terms of having the right sort of values. And you know, we may touch on that later, but our industry has been going through a crisis over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Our industry, venture capital, as well as the tech industry, right. for um, a lack of strong values, or maybe um, some people have lost their way, and it's caused a lot of problems, uh, which don't need going into. To say right, the least. At least. <laughs> um, right. Yes. <clears throat> so, the Coffin Fellows Program. It's it's pretty competitive. It's it's basically once you're in it. Once upon a time, it was a way for people who weren't in the industry to get into the industry. There's there's sort of two paths. You were working at a firm, you got nominated, and you went through this like executive MBA VC crash course for two years. The other way was to come in through what's called the finalist program, which is a thousand or something people apply each year for a certain limited number of spots, fifteen or twenty or twenty-five, and then the fellows would help match you with firms. So it's sort of a VC training program for the VC industry run by the venture capital industry now. Right. And so um, I applied back in 2003, got to the semifinals, didn't get in, went and got some more job experience, applied in 2008, again, when I was at Samsung, um, and got selected as a finalist. So it's kind of the equivalent of getting a Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory golden ticket. <laughs> right. Right. It's it's a great seal of approval. It's sort of a uh, checkbox that you've sort of been vetted as somebody who could do well in this industry. and. But it doesn't guarantee you the job. You still have to go out and match and find a firm to hire you and then go through the two years of the program. So um, moved back to the U.S., finished up my contract with Samsung, didn't renew it, moved back to the U.S. in in late 2009, spent like 14 months consulting and also trying to match and and get hired in by a firm. There's not a lot of seats in VC. So current firms usually hire A when they're raising and closing a new fund, have more money to deploy, or B, backfilling a position or C, potentially building out a new practice area. And so the seats that pop up aren't don't happen very often, and you sort of have to be there. I liken it to being, it's like a game of pickup basketball, right, around the playground. <laughs> and guys are playing hoops, 
And you could be LeBron James or Michael Jordan. But if you're Michael Jordan in Chicago or LeBron James in Ohio and the game is being played in L.A., if you're not around there when a spot comes open, yeah. you could still be Michael Jordan, LeBron James. You're not going to be invited to play the game. Right. So I had to come back here to the Bay Area in Silicon Valley, which is the epicenter of things, and yeah. hustle a lot. Um, you know, unlike the Olympics, silver medal doesn't really count for much right, right. <laughs> in second place and not getting offers. So I went through like four or five rounds of interviewing with different firms and doing working, helping startups on the side to earn some money um, till I got matched up through... Uh, at a, an event to um, one of the partners here, and, mm. and that's how I got hired into DBL. Um, and then it took like another year of working here and proving my worth to convince them to help fund me through the program. Gotcha. Through Kaufman. But yeah, so um, it's great. Ka uh, Kaufmanfellows.org, yeah. I believe, is the website. Okay. It changes a little bit of over time, but it's <laughs> Kaufman Fellows. Um, and it's been fantastic because it's, it's, you know, they're on, I was in class 17, they're in, the 22nd class of people now, and it's grown into a global network of over 500 active practicing VCs, some of whom have left to go back into entrepreneurship, others who are in government. Uh, it just provides a really amazing network for both sort of deal sourcing and deal flow, as well as, frankly, a, a really good support group, as well as, yeah. you know, this is a business that you sort of, you can read a lot about it, but it's also something you have to do to right. become good. It's like. You can read about and watch YouTube videos of how it is to be a good swimmer, but you still have to get in the water and do it yeah. and get good coaching and training to be able to move yourself forward. And so that's, it's, Kaufman's been that for me. Yeah, and I would say, like, there's also, I mean, there's so few people who are in it that, um, and it can be pretty lonely, so having that community, I can imagine, um, would be helpful. And also, just anecdotally, yeah. the Kaufman fellows I've met uh, just have been, just consistently outstanding individuals, uh, both from that personality point of view as well as the integrity. Uh, and then just going back to the, the VC uh -huh. recruiting piece, um, the analogy that my, my, one of my favorite professors at HBS uh, used to use is you have to, um, like the analogy is you have to be like kind of just hanging around outside the door of the building. Yeah. And you never know when the door is going to open. <laughs> But whoever is outside that door, uh, if, the, if, they're, if, they're, if they have the right credentials, like, is the person they're going to grab. So you kind of want to be uh, you know, on people's minds and, uh, and, and, just, and part of it is just luck. Yeah. And you uh, spend a lot of time being in the flow of what's happening in the spaces you're interested in. Right. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a quirky, it's, even today, it's still a quirky thing. And the sort of training and growth of of new venture, younger venture capitalists to be useful investing partners is, um, it's an, it's still a very much an apprenticeship thing. I mean, I'm sure yeah. you find that at Obvious and, yep. and you did it also when you're up in, uh, in Vancouver, your Vancouver firm. Um, it takes a while and, and the cycle time's a lot longer, right? Right. As a, uh, the other, the other interesting thing that when you, you switch over to this side of the table is as a product manager or like lead engineer or something, if something was broken on the manufacturing floor, I could go down and help troubleshoot it and fix it, right? Right. Or if there's a problem with a customer or something, I can get on the phone, I can go visit. Here, we've written the check to the company, we've funded the management team, we're trying to be our, provide our best advice and input, as well as introductions and things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you have no connection. The steering wheel you turn has no connection to anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a conciliary, it's a service business, you're helping the entrepreneurs grow their companies the best way you can so that... Um, your investment does well, um, but 
there's no direct control anymore. And that's, you know, coming from being a direct operator, that's been one of the sort of the most, the toughest transitions to make uh, is, you know, I can pull the lever, but there's nothing connected to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the control I, surface there. I would agree. I mean, we have similar backgrounds in terms of yeah. like b me being more of an engineer and operator uh, earlier in my career. And I would say, yeah, that is that is one of the, the, the hard things. And, and, uh, and getting back to that analogy, yeah. uh, the coach versus athlete, um, one of my previous podcast guests, uh, uh, Grove Jane, he used the same analogy, and uh, and he said sometimes, like as the coach, you want to like kind of step into the game and 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 uh, and shoot, you know, yeah. uh, like if it's basketball, like shoot shoot the ball, but um, but it's really, you know, that's not your role, right? And so it's it's a it's adapting like, to that role and 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 doing as well as you can as as a coach. Yeah, hopefully it's helped make me a better parent because a lot of times <laughs> as a parent, you're like, why do step is like, no, let them make the mistake on their own. Yeah, just be there and just. <laughs> Just to catch to catch them. So, so maybe tell us a little yeah. bit more about uh, DBL. And, so yeah, that'd yeah, be great. Your thesis. So DBL stands for Double Bottom Line Partners, and so we are a venture capitalist firm that's also an impact investing firm. Um, and it was started back in 2004 before the term impact investing even came about. But, but our our philosophy is this: we are venture capitalists uh, operating under a venture capital model to who invest in super high growth companies that have potential to become large and financially successful. But we're also looking for companies, that's the first bottom line, we're also looking for companies to work with that have a second bottom line of creating positive social, economic, or environmental, or all of the above change in the areas in which they operate. And to be able to do that in a non-concessionary way, where you're not, it's not like corporate social responsibility or doing good, where um, it doesn't affect the core business, but in, do it in a way that accelerates the growth of the business. So uh, here's an example of what it's not. Um, I used to work at a large software company in the South Bay. I think I mentioned them already. And we could do Habitat for Humanity volunteering. But did that help our company become a better software company? Not exactly. But it was right. a good thing to do right. in terms of like helping the world. Whereas a company like uh, Revolution Foods, which was a Fund One company, mm. is has created a 135 plus million dollar top line business over the last eight to ten years helping serving healthy meals chef kid inspired chef created healthy meals to kids in schools um, and you know they've grown to they serve over two and a half million meals a week in eight, eight large metro area actually more metro areas but they have eight large distribution centers and kitchens around the country 75-80% of those kids are still on the federal free and reduced student lunch program, which means they hit the U.S. government definition of like poverty level or close to it, so they need this federal government's buying their lunch. Mm. So they built this huge, their, their thesis is like, we're going to create healthy meals for kids to help them address um, diabetes and other health issues and also help them study and also help those who are the most at risk because they're just in a disadvantaged economic class. But we can do it in a profitable way to grow a large business. And so... DBL is all about finding businesses that have the potential to do good in the world and create huge impact. And the way you do that is create large, self-sustaining, multi-billion-dollar businesses like a Solar City. You know, Solar City when it got bought by Tesla, multi-billion-dollar revenues, fifteen thousand plus employees. All those people have like most of those employees, twelve thousand or so, are basically roofing contractors. Right? It's a job that doesn't require a computer science degree. Um, it provides salary, full benefits, stock option ownership, paths for progression into management and other things. And, you know, that engine drove a lot of economic good, in addition to helping create more distributed solar energy on our grid. 
So right. doing good in the world, but also has the opportunity by doing that to make, have a large financially successful business and therefore provide great venture returns. And so that's our double bottom line philosophy. Companies can have an inherent mission focus, but they don't necessarily have to. We, we work with a lot, we have a broad definition of impact and our job is to find the best investments and then help them figure out ways that for that company at the life cycle stage that they're in, find ways to improve the business um, that and create that social good while improving the sector, first bottom line. Makes sense. I'll give you uh, one more quick example because yeah, this is ahead. really neat. So, because um, people don't often think of like, can, can you do this? And so uh, it's about supporting women in entrepreneurship. A lot of it is job creation in low income areas where we can help steer manufacturing facilities or other facilities to create nucleation centers for economic growth like we did with Pandora in Oakland. But um, crazy things like if you, the city and county of San Francisco has a 1.5% payroll tax that everybody, all companies have to, corporations have to pay on their employee payroll. So, but if you are a clean tech company in the city and county of San Francisco, under 15 employees, and you get something called a California Green Business Certification, um, you don't have to pay that 1.5% payroll tax. So, you know, we have two firms here in the, in the city where we've helped them get the green business certification. Aside from being a great marketing thing here in California where people want to do business with socially minded businesses, you go through a power and water audit, you do low flush toilets, you put in LED lighting and other things to reduce your OPEX. So that's a little bit of benefit. But that 1.5% payroll tax reduction turned out to be over 120 something thousand dollars for one company for last year. Wow. So by doing good, and as a startup, you're always cash constrained. That's basically one full-time equivalent employee that they got for doing the right thing. And the laws, the rules were kind of buried in the city code, but we found out about it by having a good relationship with the people, both at the head office, but also the people way in the back with a windowless cubicle who've been doing the same job and actually get the work done, and figuring out that, gosh, there are, there are benefits that can be applied to companies of all kinds um, to help them grow and, and achieve that first and second bottom line. So. It's a really yeah. example. You never think about it. I, I've never heard of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and obviously, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of that mm -hmm. philosophy, as, as we are at my firm. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm, so, I'm constantly surprised at how many people uh, don't get it right away. Or I, I would say there's a, there's a common misconception that like, if you're doing something, something impact-related or something yeah. with the set solving a big, uh, one of the big, world's biggest problems, that you're 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 kind of bordering on philanthropy, yeah. um, and so so I don't know we, we fight that uh, stereotype and, and, and try to fight it pretty well. We do too, and it's been something that's evolved over the years. I mean, in two thousand four, when DBL first started as a Bay Area equity fund, they're like, you can't make money doing that. You right, know, you're never going <laughs> to fund a profitable business. But it takes time and successes to to prove people wrong, as well as you know, impact is a broad umbrella. For a long time, it was just foundation grants and philanthropy, and that's what people thought of. Right. And this idea of being able to get market rate plus returns by investing in high growth entities is only something that's sort of been evolving over time. And you know, we need more exits to help prove the thesis, but there have been a few good ones, but more exits with different companies in different spaces, and, and it'll happen. And I think what's really interesting for both social and sorry, obvious, mm -hmm. um, and Ventures and DBL, is that 
consumers, particularly Gen Xers and particularly the millennial generation, the people behind them, are really bought into the idea of um, not just a regular economy, but a purpose-driven economy where we want consumers want their companies to be doing the right thing. They want them to be uh, where possible more local, more organic, more sustainable, and other things. And that is driving that consumer demand is driving the success of a new wave of companies in the area, as well as upstream from them. Um, the baby boomers are aging on and passing on, and there's this wealth transfer that's happening intergenerationally from, say, grandparents and parents who the family business made a lot of money in coal, oil, and natural gas, and the grandkids are on college campuses leading the push for, hey, university, divest your foundation holdings and your <clears throat> from coal, oil, and natural gas. And people are looking, well, we want our family legacy to continue. We want these people to be involved in it. So we're going to shift our family holdings out of coal, oil, natural gas right. and into more impact-oriented sustainable things. And so the LP base for impact investing is just continuing to grow and grow. And then you have additional signals like TP, big corporations like TPG and BlackRock and others making pledges to start offering more impact-oriented options for people who are their clients you have on the clean energy side the CE100 of a lot of big corporations, the Apples, the Walmarts, and others in the world saying we're going to move to 100% renewable energy. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a rising tide of people wanting to do better um, and have their dollars aligned with their values and to try and do it in a way where you can still get the return, but you're not giving up on it by having your dollars aligned with your values. And that's a, a good sign for both, obviously, and BBL. It's also where people want to work. Yeah. Right. So you, by having these mission oriented businesses, it's not only the right thing to do, it's 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 practical because that's where younger generations want to work. And if you want to get the best people, you have to mm -hmm. you have to align with their values. But I think that's a, those are some great points. Um, we're, we're probably on the front end of a of a really powerful movement. The big, yeah, the big wave. It's, it's, it's Maverick's big wave surfing day, and it's time to go and catch some of those. Nice. Uh, so what are a few areas uh, these days that you're most interested in, in terms of like looking at new investments, whether it's an industry or a technology platform? So, so there's a lot going on. Um, we, by nature, are a generalist firm. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not you know, only enterprise SaaS or only this or the oil and hardware software. Um, it's funny because in the last few days we've had like 10 company, different companies come through. But we're looking at a lot at financial inclusivity for um, underserved populations. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking a lot at, uh, continue to look a lot at what's going to happen with uh, the next generation energy grid and the use of energy. Um, let me back up. So if I were to boil down like where do we want to think about as a firm for interesting investment ideas? It starts with... Today, 7 billion people, 20, 30, 40, 50, 10 billion people. And so not only are we adding 3 more billion people, we're also moving up, hopefully, another 3 or 4 billion people from poverty level to whatever purchasing power parity adjusted middle class means where they live. And the big needs that they have are for energy. Uh, so our grid is going under transformation, but we're also investing in firms that provide energy access to bottom of the pyramid customers like our company Off-Grid Electric in East Africa. They need uh, access to water, though that's been a really hard and tough area to make venture-level investments in, but I think we've found one that we can do, which is around, um, it's a company that helps do leak detection and also manage water waste in residential units and households using very intelligent al algorithms. Um, 
we're looking at things that relate to increasing the sustainability and availability of the food and ag sector because we need to feed everybody and also things that relate to you know data access because just like power and water data and internet and knowledge access is a utility these days you need it it's, it's a must-have to, to get anything done so um, which is a lot of fun for us because we get to look at so many different things but but energy and, and grid 2.0 um, we have a lot of investments that we're looking at new technologies for earth observation and monitoring building off of our work with planet labs um, pieces of like key hardware and software infrastructure for the next generation grid but also pure social things so we have a you know remote work future of work um, and then things to help reduce food waste so awesome we have we have so many different companies coming through it's 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 kind of a, a veritable smorgasbord of technologies and businesses and, and that's one of the wonderful things about this job and how lucky we are to, to be able to see sort of really amazingly smart and talented teams coming through and trying to do amazing things and some of which are fundable some of which are not fundable some of which are a stage fit some of which aren't a stage fit but it's a constant learning yeah so so you and I have talked a lot about what we love about this job mm -hmm. right uh, but maybe you could just talk briefly about what what's hard about it like just for people who see it as this like extremely sexy lifestyle <laughs> it's not like HBO yeah. <laughs> what, what makes it what what's hard about it or, or what's uh, what's what's challenging so I'll put it this way so the measure of people very often is not how things are when things are going well or companies are going it's what people do and what firms and corporations do when things go sideways and they always do in a startup you know things that go sideways and down you'll have near-death experiences before and hopefully you'll pull out of them and go on to a future success but sometimes you don't and so um, it's hard to as a former like elite athlete it's hard to accept the loss <laughs> of a company or accept the loss just like you hate losing a race right, right. You always want to win every race you can't win every race, but you hate losing right <laughs> there are times when you know this is a business where if half of our portfolio companies or close to half aren't a zero we're probably not taking enough of the big risk to get the big win mm. and it's really um it's really hard to um go in and try to help a company work through things and, and not have it turn out um it's, it's hard going through turnarounds, whether it's having to replace a CEO or uh, reposition a company. Um, there's a lot of s tough slogging in day-to-day -day work that happens that's really boring. It's not all, you know, <laughs> gosh, the Founder Group had this video a few years ago. I'm a VC, and which people should check out oh, on, yeah. on YouTube. It, it's, it's, it pokes fun at the industry as well. Yeah. Um, uh, but we like them a lot. We're co-investors with them in a couple of companies. But it's it's not as, there's a lot of hard work over a long time. So we have companies that we've invested in that when I first joined at 2011, it's 2018. There's still a couple of years away from an exit. You know, there's, it's seven years. We thought our investment memo, oh yeah, we'll go IPO in 2015 or so, four right. or five years. No, it's 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 a long and um, crazy random drunken walk of a journey to get to success <laughs> and it's a lot of you know you do what you can and, and you try to create those there are a few opportunities in the year where you can do something whether it's a key hire or a board member or a round of financing to support a company through a rough patch or helping them out that can really change the trajectory of a firm 
to in an organization to get to success and and there's a lot of times you do that and it just doesn't work out mm. and that's a tough part of the job um, also you know frankly you know if you think about incoming so we'll see about 2,500 or so I, I checked the numbers recently in our in our database we see like 2,500 something opportunities come through the door every year. Some of them are, are not warm introductions. It's just, hey, we saw you speak at a conference. Here's our business plan, we're doing this. But of those 2,500, we will probably really dig into maybe 100. We'll go deep on 15 or 20 and we'll make three or four investments. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of separating the wheat from the chaff and um, and sometimes we won't win on the ones that we do put term sheets in on too. So. Um, it's a very amorphous job and people have to be uh, accepting of the fact that uh, there's no set schedule. It's not like, okay, I'm in Adobe, the next release of my product is in six months and our development cycle is gonna be this and we're all working toward that one goal and it's a very concrete set of steps that you need to get there right. through the software development process, even if it's an agile process these days or not. This is not like that at all. Um, things take a lot of time. Um, but I think the biggest thing that helps in this kind of work is to have a lot of empathy and a lot of understanding of people and psychology. And because to compete at this level, the table stakes are already like great technology, great team, super smart people, hardworking and all that. But helping manage some of the interactions between founders and other board members and mm -hmm. other people who may or may not be aligned at any given time is is, is very much an exercise in human relations, and that's probably the biggest skill that one can learn to be successful. That's, the that's other stuff is table point. stakes, right? That's a phenomenal point. I, I'm, always, I'm always surprised by uh, how much human-to-human -human interactions play a role in the success or failure of, of companies, yeah. and, and I 100% I agree with if you. If your listeners haven't seen it yet, I mean, there's a great book uh, by Noam Wasserman, who's a professor at, oh, yeah. at Harvard called The Innovator's Dilemmas. Right? Yep. And the study was done a few years ago, but basically the gist of it is they took, he, he studied 15, 12 or 1500 IT tech startups. And he's like, what was the cause of premature death there? Was it wrong market timing, technology fit? What was it? You know, big competitor came in and crushed them. For most of them, the majority of the failures that happened there, it was because of dysfunctions among the founding and early teams. Yep. It wasn't the technology, they had better technology, they had better marketing, they had better sales, but the teams couldn't work together and grow together with the company, and so it blew up. Precisely. <laughs> and when we're investing, the companies that we invest in are early stage. Um, you know, There's the hope and the promise of the new market and the technology application. And then a lot of it is based on, are, are these the people that are going to be there and make this happen? And then the bigger question is, are they going to be there and make it happen over the long term? So it's very rare to get a Bill Gates who grows up with his company, a Lyndon Reeve who grows up with his company, an Elon Musk who grows up with multiple companies. I mean, that's <laughs> unicorns. Um, at some point, you may have to have the difficult conversation of like, the company's grown to a certain stage and it needs new things. Right. Uh, you may have to step aside or bring in new, and that's... It's always tough to do that. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, yeah, I would, yeah. I would second uh, the recommendation of that book. No, Noam is a uh, treasure. Uh, so I think we're going to transition to the rapid fire section. Lightning of round. The podcast. I will try to be pithy. Okay, no, you're good. Um, so let's see. 
What has been your favorite mistake um, if, from your past? So something negative that happened or, or, or you know, a, a troubling time that, you know, if you fast forward to today is actually something you're, you're grateful for because it benefited you in some way. Um, that's a good question. There's a lot of small mistakes. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, there are a lot of small mistakes that you try to learn. The base mistakes are ones you can learn from, but I think um, I'll pick one. And it was interesting too because I learned I learned that it's it's when you're an athlete in a sport like swimming, mm -hmm. which is mainly an individual sport, except for relays, it's it's mostly about you. <laughs> Right, it's it's you, and you. At the end of the day, you're really only racing yourself in the clock. And if you happen to do a best time, you can take that, and it's a small win. If you happen to do a best time and you're ahead of everybody else, then you can really celebrate because you won. But um, per, I'll take the personal best. But I think in this case, it was it, it was at uh, a company I worked at right before Samsung, and I was doing well there and uh, moving up. And basically, I ended up leaving. And the reason I ended up leaving was that there. I was I was in a program that started by the CEO, like a rotational leadership development program, and he was getting ready to transition on. And there were two guys who were going to be the next CEO. One of them was like one for the commercial side. One of them was like product and operations manufacturing side. And the person from the commercial side ended up getting chosen to be the, like sort of the next heir apparent. And um, for it was just an interesting lesson in workplace dynamics because. All of us that were associated with the other guy's team, the guy that didn't get chosen VCO, we all ended up leaving within six months because very quickly we were doing our jobs, we were doing well, but then it became very obvious and clear to that, you know, we weren't welcome mm. for whatever reason. Hmm. You know, we're still needed to do our, our, our functions, but we weren't welcome. And I started trying to fight that. And because this is just not make sense, it's not fair. And, you know, I'm still performing, but yet, nothing's happening I'm actually being feel like I'm being pushed aside and I was um, but the fighting it I, the fighting it made it worse and um, I you know I had to take a step back and, and what I learned was you know eventually it all worked out I ended up getting a job at Samsung moving to Korea and I had three amazing years working there uh, with that firm it was funny though the moment I moved over there and one of the reasons I went over was because the center of gravity of mobile technology in 2006 and seven was in East Asia. Mm. Then the iPhone came out, like three months after we moved to Korea and like everything, and then Android came out and the App Store, it all shifted back here over the next couple of years, which <laughs> is one of the reasons why I wanted to come back. Um, but just you know, that learning, of, you know, it's not personal, it's not about you, it's about the company and that's more important and you just have to learn to deal with it. Um, Got it. And that's, that's helped me be less attached to things and a little bit more detached in a way that I think is helpful when you're seeing what's going on. Mm. And you know, where do we run into that when you have to replace a CEO or move somebody that's a founder along? Right. Other things like that. Right. Uh, that detachment comes in handy. Yeah. Um, and as a fiduciary, like, right? If you're right. serving on board, you have to think about all the shareholders. It's, yeah. It's, there's a sort of dual has like, I'm thinking about the fund and our return, but I'm also thinking about everybody and what's good for the company overall and what will move it forward. Yeah, right. Legally, that is our responsibility. Absolutely. Um, what is uh, a favorite quote you think about a lot or, or that you live by? Um, 
again on the, on, on the topic and theme of trying to stay even keeled and objective about things um, and I don't know if it's originally his but Phil Wickham who's the past uh, CEO and president of the Kaufman Fellows Program he was in actually Kaufman Class 1 and ran it for about 10 years and he's the one who was the head of the Kaufman Fellows Program when I got in um, he sat me down once and he told me you know, there's Patrick you know there's no such thing as good news or bad news there's just news and what you choose to do about it and how you choose to react to it makes it the good or the bad news. Um, which is a way of saying like all kinds of crazy things are going to happen in your life. In fact, um, I'll, I'll give another plug for, for Brad Feld. There's, there's a blog post he wrote several years ago. It's like everything in my universe is effed up. So, something new in my universe is effed up every day. <laughs> right. And you can't be overreactive to that. You have to stay like somewhat detached and objective in order to figure out the right path forward um, in any kinds of situations, particularly in crises that you're dealing with your company. So, you know, there's no good news or bad news. There's just news and how you choose to deal with it. Mm, I love it. I haven't heard that before. That's helpful. And I'll give you give you one more, which is also related. A good a good friend of mine um, at Ulu Ventures. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, but he's the head of Ulu Ventures, and he basically you ask him how he's doing. It, you know, I feel great today by choice, which again is a, another way of saying that like there's no good bad news. It's how you choose to deal with the things that, that come to you mm. that allows you to to operate and perform at a high level. And frankly, if I think back, you, that's how you had to be as an athlete. Like you got on the blocks, you went through prelims, your finals. You know, whatever time you got on the blocks, you did your race, you gave it your best shot, you looked at the result. Sometimes it was awesome. Sometimes it sucked. Get up, you know. It's particularly in college dual meets. It's like, okay, your next race is in 15 minutes. You've got to put that aside. Get up again. Get ready for the next race and go full out and try to win that one. And what happened happened and get up and get ready for the next race. Yeah. I, uh, th what that makes me think of is uh, when, I, when I was running really long distances, um, one little hack I read about or, or uh, was no matter how you're feeling, you just tell yourself, like, I feel fantastic. <laughs> and it was such a silly thing. And I, at first I was really skeptical of it, but I started doing it and it actually it really did Your body did listens to your brain. Yeah, <laughs> it did work. We did that. Yes, like you said, 10, 400 IMs on five minutes or something. And it's just like by number seven, you're just burning and want to throw up in the gutter. It's like, okay, just... Get through the next one. <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> What's been the most influential book you've read? That's a good question. I haven't been reading as much as I would have liked in this job. Um, um, yeah, the, more recently, uh, what's his name again? Essentialism? Oh, I don't Let me know. Let look it up. Um, that's give me a second. Sure. Yeah, the author's name. Uh, this is a good one. It's and I highly recommend it to everybody who's listening. Uh, Greg McCune, M E M C K E O W N. Essentialism, uh -huh. discipline, producer. So, success for a long time. Like when you're in school, when you're younger, it's like let me do more, let me do a little more, let me do more. Um, Again, back to our you know our jobs. Twenty five hundred something opportunities come through the door to our firm in a year, and 
um, you can't do everything and do everything well. You need to focus on the two or three key things that will make a difference, mm. which is basically the too long didn't read version of this book. And um, you know we're all busy in our lives with family and work and for you this podcast side <laughs> hustle. Um, so how do you pick and, and and also you know in a startup company or early stage firm there are a lot of fires to be fought. But what is the one that's going to make a difference and and change the trajectory and, and change things the most is what you need to figure out and focus on. So it's, yeah, essentialism, Greg McCone. I love it. I, um, I, I definitely want to read Disciplined that. pursuit of less. And the discipline part is the, is the key there. That's super compelling. Um, how can people find you, follow you, like be in touch with you? Um, I'm on Twitter, although not that much. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Our website is dblpartners.vc, mm -hmm. um, but I'm out and about in, in the world, um, and I actually tend to keep somewhat of a lower profile on social media and all. Mm. Um, don't do Facebook for a number of reasons. <laughs> uh, Twitter I'll do to help promote our companies and all, um, but you know I'm the kind of person that has like air-gapped my house from smart resisted the, the allure of the smart home and other things, even though I'm, mm. I am an engineer by training. I love technology, but I'm also very uh, private. But I can be found. Uh, Patrick at dblpartners.vc. There you go. It's probably the best way. There's, uh, there's definitely some benefits to disconnecting and to, to having some privacy, especially with kids and, and all that. Yeah. So I totally, totally get it. But um, that's great. Patrick, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been an outstanding and really fun conversation uh, for me and I'm sure for other people. So thanks it, for It has for podcast. me too, Joe. It's been, it's a super, been a, it's been a great pleasure. And um, before we go, and I know the people on the podcast can't really see this, <laughs> but I have here a uh, torch from the Sydney Olympic, two Sydney 2000 Olympic torch relay. Oh, where I got beautiful. To, the, it came through the Pacific Islands before I went to Sydney. And I got to be a torchbearer for about um, five minutes with the Olympic flame. Wow. I wanted to show this to you. Wow. I'm um, holding it. It is beautiful. It looks like a boomerang. Yeah. Uh, it has a little gas cartridge in there that held about 10 minutes worth of flame. And so, yeah, I actually, my relay, rag, uh, relay leg, if you will, was actually on an outrigger canoe in one of the lagoons in Guam. I was, <laughs> it got lit on shore. Uh, someone rode it out to my boat. And then we lit it in the middle of the lagoon and then they rode it back to shore which was a great thing because I was sick as a dog that day I don't think I could have run the 500 <laughs> meters with I had four wow. big burly 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 guys to to paddle my outrigger canoe but Amazing. but uh, something so I wish your I wish your viewer because viewers well, could see this right? picture of it after. yeah yeah okay cool well Patrick thanks again this has been amazing and thanks for everybody for listening thank you all bye Thank you for listening to this episode of the Epic Human Podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you happen to be using. And if you want to keep up to date on the latest Epic Human Podcast, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Epic Human Pod. And if you have any ideas for guests or feedback on the show, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.